it is good for us, isn't it, to be able to worship together. We serve a mighty God. I wonder, have you ever been in an airplane flying in the, in the clouds? When you look out the window, you can't really see much of anything. Um, things just aren't clear. They're, they're obstructed. But as the plane descends and flies under the clouds, suddenly you can see. The pilot can see the runway, and that's a good thing. <laughs> or maybe you've been hiking in the mountains and literally cannot see the forest for all the trees. But then you get above Timberline, and suddenly you can see the entire panorama. Everything makes sense. You can see it clearly. That's kind of the situation that we find our disciples in, in Luke chapter 9. Um, so if you haven't already, uh, I encourage you to turn there now and then join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, it is so good that we have had time to worship you today. Lord, we come now to the time when we're going to open your word. Our passage today is really simple and clear, but it can be a very hard one for us to hear. Lord, would you guide us, keep us focused. May your word speak to us. Speak to us words of life, O oh God the very words that we need to hear. May your words pierce our hearts. May they penetrate our minds so that we might be better equipped to serve you. Empty us, Lord. Empty us of ourselves and fill us with you. We pray that this might be so for your glory and yours alone. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, it's a, there's an easy thing to gloss over there. In the very first sentence, it says, Jesus was off by himself praying. There's at least seven times in Luke where we find Jesus off praying. And we, while we don't know exactly what he was praying about, most likely he was praying for communion with his father. And he was praying intercessorily for his friends, his disciples. We just don't know the specifics in this instance, but pretty much every time Jesus is off praying, something significant happens right after. That's the case here. Now, the disciples have been with Jesus for many months now, perhaps even as much as two, two and a half years. 
they've seen um, a lot of things. They've had numerous opportunities to figure out just who this man is. And we've seen a number of those in the passages that we've studied the last few weeks. Proof upon proof has, has been presented. And the evidence is in, and it's time for the disciples to have an exam. So Jesus asked them two questions. The first question, who do the people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What does the court of public opinion have to say about me? And they give him the same answer that was given to Herod when he asked, who is this man, Jesus? They say, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or another of the prophets of old that has been risen. Since the crowds have been with Jesus, they've been following him. They've uh, had firsthand evidence of just who Jesus is. And again, we've seen that many times over the past few weeks. The people knew that he was someone special. They knew that the things that he was doing were not possible for any mere human being. They realized he must be from God, for only God could send a resurrected John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet. And yet, presented with all this evidence, having all the messianic prophecies available to them, they came to a conclusion that is far, far short of reality. They were on the right track. They knew that he was from God. They knew that he'd come down from heaven. They also knew that he'd ticked box after box on the messianic checklist. Uh, power over demons, check. Power over disease, check. Power over death, check. Power over nature, double check. They had all this evidence, but they stopped short. They weren't willing to go all the way and say, this is the Christ. Why couldn't they see it? What were they missing? Well, unfortunately, the same questions apply to us today. There are many, even some in the church, who miss it, who just don't get it. Well, the next question on their exam is actually the most important question in the world. And this, this is the climax. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus was bringing the disciples to a point of commitment. It really didn't matter what public opinion was. It, it didn't matter what others were saying about Jesus. What do you say? Who do you say I am? Well, speaking for other, the others, as he often did, Peter just blurts out, you are the Christ of God. Well done, Peter. You got it right. The disciples got it right. They passed. Well, how about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, Jesus was asking the disciples, but as we read the gospel, he's also asking us. Now, this is the most important question in the world 
for each one of us. And it's so for a couple of reasons. First, it's important because Jesus is the most important person in the universe. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. That's in 1 Colossians. Or, sorry, Colossians 1. <laughs> uh, we have to know who Jesus is to make sense of anything. Another reason this question is all important is because your answer determines your eternal destiny. The Bible says the free gift of eternal life is only for those who know Jesus Christ. And how can we know him if we don't know who he is? This is a momentous occasion for the disciples. They voiced what was in their hearts. They've, they've kind of gone out on a limb. They've confessed Jesus as the Christ of God, the Messiah. There's conviction and commitment on their part at a whole new level. Think how excited they must have been. The Messiah is here. Imagine what they were thinking. Now the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Now the Roman oppression is going to be overthrown. Jesus is going to reign as king. And there's going to be peace and justice. And there's going to be freedom. And we get to reign with him. Let's go tell everybody. Right? But Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Jesus said to them, yeah, pick up in verse 21. He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this phrase, warned and instructed, um, it doesn't really carry the weight the imperative that I think is in the context of, of the verse here. It's really more Jesus ordered them. He commanded them not to tell anyone. Why would he do that? Well, let's look at three reasons why he said this. One reason is that the people just aren't ready. Like the disciples, they're thinking this is going to be a kingdom a king, uh, someone to reign physically on earth at this time. So they had, they had the right idea, but the wrong time. And they're looking for this conquering king. Um, and so Jesus knows that they're going to try and force him into a, a, an earthly throne. The people have ignored inconvenient scripture in their view pertaining to the Messiah. But they held on to what they wanted to hear. It's a good warning for us in our generation. Another reason is that there's a judgment on those already who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. You know, there, there comes a time when those who won't believe simply cannot believe. It becomes impossible for them to see the truth and to believe. This is a judgment that only comes from God. It's a judgment only God in his omniscience, in his perfect justness, 
and in his infinite holiness can make. It's certainly not a judgment that we can make, nor should we. Now, the last reason is the disciples themselves are not ready. They don't have the full gospel yet. They know who Jesus is, but they don't understand what it is he came to do. And without that information, without experiencing that transforming truth themselves, they just don't have the message of salvation to tell the world. Now, right after issuing this command to keep silent, Jesus drops a bombshell. Okay, you know who I am, and now I must tell you what I came to do. Here at the disciples' supreme moment of confession and conviction, at the climax of the revelation of who this man is, Jesus reveals that there's an even greater climax coming. He tells the disciples that he must suffer. He must be rejected by their religious leaders. He must be killed. And he must rise again on the third day. Luke leaves us right there. But Matthew gives us uh, some additional information. In Matthew 16, right after Jesus tells the disciples that uh, what must happen to him, we find Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus, how, how, how can you possibly think that the Messiah could be rejected? That makes no sense. The Messiah is the expected one. He's not going to suffer. You've got this wrong, Lord. Oh, Peter. <laughs> Peter. A minute ago, you're saying, you're the Christ, the Christ of God. And now you're rebuking him? That just shows how mixed up, how confused, how discombobulated the disciples were at this point in time, that Peter would even dare to do something like that. Well, at this point, they understand, the disciples, they understand who Jesus is, but they don't get what he came to do. Even though he's told them explicitly, and he tells them over and over and over again, they really don't get it until after the resurrection. Jesus told them in advance what would happen. More than that, he told them what must happen. All his predictions came true. They came true because they had to. All this was divine necessity. What, what did Jesus say? He said, the son of man might, maybe will. No, he said, the son of man must suffer and, and do all these things. All of these things, this suffering, the rejection, the death, these are the work that he came to do. You see, it's all part of God's redemptive plan. All part of what he promised in his holy scriptures. These were necessary for there's no other way for sin to be forgiven except by the atoning death of the perfect son of God. Suffering, rejection, death, we associate all those things with the cross. But 
that's not all. There's also a crown. Jesus said he would rise again on the third day. There would be triumph in, in the end, and this too was part of the plan. This too must be. Here in the resurrection is the assurance, the guarantee of eternal life. This is the full gospel which the disciples had yet to comprehend. Not just a kingdom, more than a cross, also an empty tomb. This is the fullness of the Christ. This is the gospel. Luke has given us the answer to the question, who is this man? He is Jesus, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. He is our Savior. Luke has also told us what the Christ must do, why he came. He came to suffer and to die for our sins and then to rise again, offering the free gift of eternal life to everyone who confesses him as the crucified and risen Christ. So what is your confession today? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe he came to do? Is the gospel clear to you? If it is, praise God. But maybe for some, it's not quite that clear. Maybe, like the disciples, you need to hear it again. If that's the case, I pray that you will hear the clear message of this man of God, Jesus Christ, who came to give us this message. Hear the same message that the disciples heard and ask God for faith to believe in his Christ. The disciples, they know who Jesus is. They've confessed him as the Christ of God. And he's told them what he came to earth to do. To suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised. And next, Jesus tells anyone who is interested exactly how to follow him. Pick up in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He gives the invitation, if anyone wishes to come after me, and anyone means exactly that, anyone. Those back in that day and us here today. The invitation is open to all. And then he tells us, all of us, how to come after him, what it means to be his disciple, what he expects in our response to his invitation. You see, Jesus is laying out here the terms of discipleship, and he's making full disclosure. There's nothing hidden in fine print 
in some appendix. He's not sugarcoating anything either. His teaching here is consistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. Time's not going to allow us to look at passages like Luke 14, starting in verse 25, or Mark 10, starting in verse 17, or, or John 12, starting in verse 24. And that's just to mention a few. There are many more. And they're all consistent. On the one hand, if you think about it logically, it makes sense that if Christ is going to suffer and be rejected, well, then, of course, his disciples will likely face the same suffering. They'll likely meet the same rejection. But on the other hand, it had to be really tough for the disciples to hear these words. They're surely thinking, this can't be. And there's got to be an easier way, a, a, a better way, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. It doesn't sound all that attractive. Um, this isn't recruiting post poster material. Um, yet, this is the gospel. In just a few verses, in just a couple of sentences, Jesus shared the whole gospel and made application for daily life. It doesn't sound all that appealing. It sounds hard. Frankly, it sounds impossible. And this is Jesus' own definition of what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple, to be a Christian. Well, let's look a little deeper at these three actions that we're supposed to take when we accept the invitation of the Christ. The first thing he says is deny yourself. The Greek verb here is uh, pretty strong. Literally, it means to deny utterly, disown, to refuse association with. And it's our sinful self with all of the selfish desires of our fallen nature that we are to shun. It means seeing yourself as God saw you without Christ so that you don't want to even associate with your old self. It means giving up all dependence on yourself, all trust in yourself, all confidence in what you are by nature. It means rejecting any thought of doing what pleases ourselves when it comes at the expense of pleasing God. We are called to disown the self-indulgence and self-gratification that characterizes our old sinful nature. Whatever there is of ourselves that comes between us and God, we must reject. Now that's a 180 degree turn from what our culture tells us. We're bombarded, aren't we, with siren calls to pamper ourselves, to indulge, to enjoy. After all, you deserve it. You should have whatever you want, whenever you want it. And if you don't get it, well, then that's cause for you to be upset and even become angry. <coughs> well, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. You might think, well, that's easy for him to say. He's God. 
Well, it is easy for him to say because he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. Jesus, you see, denied himself his own glory in heaven. He denied himself all the pleasures of sin. He denied himself protection from pain, the pain of torture and death on a cross, and the spiritual and emotional pain of separation from his father, of being forsaken by God himself. Jesus denied himself in order to do the work that he came here to do. And now he calls us to deny ourselves to do the work that God has called us to do. It means saying no to sin, no to ungodly attitudes, no to unhealthy relationship, no to things that waste our time, no to things that sap our spiritual strength. It can even mean saying no to good things that just aren't in God's plan for us at this present time. So what does that look like for us? Here's, here's some practical applications. When someone won't forgive you or you're neglected or purposely set aside, and that stings, it hurts. But in the midst of that, if your heart is happy and you're content to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's, that's dying to self. When the good you do is spoken of with evil intent, when your wishes are dismissed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise up in your heart, or even to defend yourself. But you take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder or irregularity or annoyance, when you can stand face to face with foolishness, extravagance, spiritual insincerity and insensitivity, and endure it like Jesus did, that is dying to self. When you're content with any circumstance, any interruption that comes from God, that is denying yourself. When you don't care to refer, refer to yourself or to record your own good works or seek commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see another brother or sister prosper, have their needs met, and you can honestly rejoice with them in spirit and feel no envy, nor even question God while your own needs are far greater and your circumstances more desperate, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof even from a subordinate and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Denying yourself, dying to self, that means coming to the end of you. Are you seeking something for yourself that Jesus wants you to deny? Are you holding on to something that he's calling you to give up 
or maybe give away? Well, next, Jesus says, take up your cross daily. For us today, the cross symbolizes everything that Jesus did for our salvation. But those listening to Jesus that day, they saw the cross only as a means of an awful, agonizing, humiliating death. During the time of Jesus, it's estimated that over 30,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans. The disciples were well aware of what carrying a cross meant. Taking up a cross could only mean one thing to them. You must be ready to die each day for the sake of Jesus. This was not some uh, one-time, one-and-done, oh, I made a statement of faith thing. This was an all-day, every-day, 24-7 willingness to give up all for Christ. This is a call for extreme devotion. This is willingness to endure persecution. This is willingness to endure hatred and hostility, rejection, reproach, shame, suffering, and yes, even death. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the ordinary trials of daily life. Um, he wasn't talking about Oh, I guess that's just my cross to bear, that my mother-in-law is the way she is. And Jesus meant specifically the trials endured for his sake. Hardship that comes because we're trying to follow Christ. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of my friend Gadot, who I met while we lived in Egypt. Um, Gadot is a, a Christian, and he's also an Egyptian. And he worked for a, a major international accounting firm. Um, he attended the same church we did, which is how I got to know him. And he came to our men's evening Bible study. Um, and then one week he wasn't there. And then he came to him and he said, can I get the notes? Can I get the, the information for next week's study? Sure. Next week came and Gadot was not there. But he came again and said, can, can you please give me the, the notes? Well, yes, Gadot, I can do that, but why, what, what's wrong? Why haven't you been at, at study? Well, my supervisor found out that I am attending a Bible study. My supervisor is a Muslim. And so on Tuesdays, at the end of the day, which was, that was the day we met, he comes to me and he gives me meaningless, trivial work. And he says, I must complete this work before I can go home. So Gadot couldn't, couldn't come to class. I was incensed and he could read it on my face. And, and I started, they, they can't do that. That's not, that's not right. And he said, Mr. Brian, just, just be patient. Be patient. You see, he will grow tired. I will not. Because Jesus gives me strength. 
Suffering for the sake of Jesus comes in many forms. The redeeming thing in all is that Jesus is with us every time, all the time. Well, thirdly, Jesus says, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Literally, let him be continuously following me. You see, it's a continual pattern of obedience that Jesus calls us to. And Jesus taught this concept over and over. Um, there's an example in John chapter 14, starting in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And just a, a little further down, he adds, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Obedience, then, is our expression of love for Christ, willingly and continually given. Okay, just to be sure we're perfectly clear, these three things, they're not some sequential steps in a progression. There's, there's no chronology involved. These are spiritual realities that, that just go together. They're interwoven. They're, they're blended. They're integrated. And as long as we're clarifying, these are also not something that you can just call up, that you can muster. You can drum up. Um, you can't achieve this in your own power. It's just not possible. And importantly, these are not the purchase price of salvation. Self-denial, taking up your cross and obediently following Jesus, these are the result of saving faith. These, is, these are the result of belief in Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior. They are an evidence of a mighty work of the Spirit of God, transforming the life of a, of a wretched, vile sinner for the glory of God. Oh, and it, it also doesn't mean that we're suddenly, instantaneously made perfect. Um, we still fail miserably in our old nature. But it's a failure that's already been forgiven. That debt's already been paid. Well, um, all of this had to be weighing heavily on, the, on those hearing Jesus' words that day. But notice how Jesus now works in some arguments for his position, some considerations that stimulate a willing response to the affirmative. Note the little word for at the beginning of verses 24, 25, and 26. Jesus here is giving us reasons. He's giving us incentives for choosing his terms. In verse 24, we have a paradox. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Those who wish to save their lives are driven by self-preservation, which is nothing but an expression of self-love. 
And that's completely antithetical to denying yourself. These are people who believe that their satisfaction and security are up to them. They pursue careers with blind ambition, with little time for anyone or anything else. Or they live their lives centered on their entertainment and their pleasures. These are folks who are unwilling to make any personal involvement or personal investment in God's kingdom. They may call themselves Christians, but they won't suffer for the cause of Christ. They won't engage in a conversation that might expose their own spiritual commitment. And at the first sign of hardship or persecution, they pull back as their instinct for self-preservation kicks in. But here's the kicker. When you seek your own salvation, you end up losing absolutely everything. Your physical life in this world, all your worldly goods, and your eternal soul, doomed to hell forever. In contrast, those who are willing to lose their lives for Jesus' sake end up saving their lives. And there's a, a kind of a dual aspect to this salvation. Their lives in this world are saved from being wasted. Instead of squandering themselves for earthly gain, they spend themselves for the glory of God. And even better, they will spend eternity in everlasting joy in the presence of God. Losing your life to Jesus now is to save it forever. And that's a compelling reason to follow Jesus. Thankfully, we don't all have to be martyrs to gain the crown. There's more than one way to lose our lives. Giving ourselves completely to Jesus in faith. Living for others rather than ourselves. We lose ourselves when we show kindness to stranger. Compassion to those who are weaker or less fortunate. When we share the gospel with others. In verse 25, we have the question of profit. Jesus poses a scenario which is the best possible scenario for the person who wants to save his life. Imagine someone living only for themselves, gaining everything the world has to offer. Prosperity, prestige, even power. And then Jesus asked, is all this worth the person's soul? For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The question, basically rhetorical. But the answer is, it profits a person nothing. Absolutely nothing. You can see your soul, your soul is the most precious thing in the world. Why? Well, it's made in the image of God. It's eternal. And God loves you. Your soul is the one thing that you have that has real value. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Now, if the value of the entire world is not equal to your soul, how much less so the bits and bobs of the world that we collect or the small treasures that we strive for every day. 
Is it really worth letting these things stand between you and your God? There's a play, uh, A Man for All Seasons, and it tells the story of Thomas More. He was the Lord Chancellor of England, and he fell out of favor with King Henry VIII. More would not support Henry's adultery. So the king plotted to have More falsely accused, convicted, and executed. But he had to have an accomplice to pull this off. And his accomplice was a fellow named Richard Rich, to whom the king promised the dukedom of Wales if he'd help him out. Well, at the end of the trial, as Moore is being led out to be executed, he stops and he says to Rich, Why, Richard? It profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. But for Wales? If your soul is not worth the world, it's certainly not worth a dukedom and even less the trifles that we settle for. Count the cost and you will see that Jesus has identified an incentive to follow him that is purely to your profit. Jesus makes an emphatic statement which brings the pressure of eternity to bear in arguing for us following him. We find this in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, Jesus knew he would return in all his glory to judge every person who ever lived. And his final verdict will determine our eternal destiny. Think about the infinite joy for those acknowledged by Jesus as his own. Consider also the dreadful terror that awaits those who are abandoned by God. And who will God abandon? Who will lose their soul? Those who are ashamed of Jesus and his words. Those who refuse to deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow Jesus in obedience. Think about this. Think about it. This is a very sober warning. There are times, aren't there, when we're ashamed of Jesus, times when we hesitate to let people know that we're Christians, when we're too timid to speak up and take a stand on a moral issue, when we're afraid to pray in public or to let others see us reading our Bible. Will Jesus be ashamed of us? As convicting as that may be for us, all the more so for the disciples. You see, in just a few months from this time when he's speaking to them, when it mattered the most, they were even more ashamed of Jesus than we could possibly be. As Jesus op offered up his life for our sins, unashamed to take on our guilt, the disciples were ashamed of him. They denied Jesus rather than themselves. They left him to take up his cross alone rather than to take theirs up themselves. Yet Jesus had nothing but grace for his disciples. He died on the cross for their shame and for ours. And when he was raised from the dead, what did he do? He went to them and gave them the courage 
to meet his terms of discipleship. Our passage closes with a reminder of that reward. Jesus says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Taste death means simply to die. So when did any of the disciples see the kingdom of God? Well, scholars have offered many different explanations. Um, it could refer to the resurrection, or it might be the ascension. You know, when Jesus left the disciples and returned to heaven in a cloud of glory. Or perhaps Jesus was talking about sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, when the disciples received power and they established the church. Or it could be related somehow to the destruction of the, of the temple in 70 AD. These are all events connected to the kingdom. Events revealing its heavenly glory in some way. Or maybe Jesus was talking about the transfiguration, which just happens to be the next passage in Luke in which Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in the full glory of his kingdom. This was an exceptional experience for these three disciples. But Jesus has the same grace for us. Remember, he died for our shame as much as anyone else's. Remember, too, the one who, who suffered and died for us is with us in all things. Soon, Jesus will welcome us into the Father's glory. If only we will answer his call to deny self, take up our cross daily, and follow him in obedience. Would you stand and let's pray. Almighty God, your grace is so great. And Lord, your invitation is so clear. You have made it possible for even the most wretched and vile sinner to be reconciled to you. You've also made the terms of your discipleship clear. Following Jesus, Lord, it's not the easy road. We, we cannot travel this road without your strength, without your grace and certainly not without your mercy. Praise God, the destination, though, is, is worth the journey. It's worth denying ourselves, Lord. It's worth taking up our cross daily. It's worth every ounce of energy we spend to obediently follow our Savior. Lord, for any here today who may not have chosen to follow after Jesus yet, I pray for your wisdom, that they would choose the eternal over the temporal, that they would choose the treasure of heaven over the trinkets of this world, that they would choose Jesus above all else. And Lord, for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, I pray that you will use these truths to help us examine ourselves. Lord, if there are any attitudes or desires or activities that have come between us and you, may they be removed by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God in us. Lord, would you work in us? Would you work through us, Lord? We, we don't understand how that is possible, Lord, but that is how you've chosen to operate. 
work through us, Lord, even though in and of ourselves we can do nothing. In our weakness, your strength is perfectible. Oh God, to this end, we pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for the opportunity to worship with you today. And remember to sign the cards for Frank and for the shine teachers out in the foyer. Go with God. Set me free.